You know, the people in Hollywood, they've discovered that uh, people, we, we really like a good fairy tale, you know. It's, it's been the type of drama that has just drawn people in over the years because we like to be whisked away into a far-off kingdom, a kingdom of opulence and elegance, wealth and majesty. You know, we, we like a good, benevolent king. And, you know, it just adds a little intrigue when there's a damsel in distress because we also know that in any good fairy tale, there's a hero. And the good guys always win. Well, this morning, it's almost as if we're entering a fairy tale-like setting, only it's all true, as we enter into the story of Esther and our study, The Weight of the Crown. It has all of the elements that any good fairy tale has. And as we dive into this story, it's almost as if we're whisked away into another kingdom, a kingdom of opulence and elegance, a kingdom that's, that's beautiful. And, uh, but just to give you a little background before we jump right in, uh, you need to know uh, that the book of Esther, it, it is one of the last books that was written in the Old Testament. Okay, it took place uh, after the Babylonian exile. So you might remember that uh, the Babylonians come in, they conquer the southern kingdom Judah, they force uh, the Jews into, uh, into exile over in Babylon. Well, after the Babylonian Empire ends, come the Persians. Persian King Cyrus, he issues an edict, a decree that the Jews can go home. Zerubbabel, he comes, he leads a small wave of people home. Then Ezra comes, he leads a greater wave of people home. And then you have a big gap, really, between Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's toward the end of that gap where there's still some Jews who have stayed in the land. Well, it's, that, it's, th- it's these people. Esther's one of those who's just stayed in the land. And so the story of Esther happens really right before you read Nehemiah. Um, and so that, that's where we're jumping in this morning. But as we jump in, you should know that over the years, uh, Esther is a book that the Jews have loved. They've loved the book of Esther. And Christians, on the other hand, well, we really haven't known quite what to do with this book. Uh, and so the first seven centuries of the church, no commentaries were written on the book of Esther. It is the one book of the Old Testament that uh, was almost ignored. And so then by the time you get to the Reformation, you get a guy like John Calvin. He comes. He's a great preacher, a great commentator. Well, the one book he doesn't write about, Esther. The one book he doesn't really preach on, Esther. No sermons from Esther. Martin Luther Martin Luther said that he regarded Esther like the book of Maccabees. He wished it was never written. All right, there's been those who said, hey, don't preach on Esther, don't study Esther. And so for that reason, I'm really excited just to jump into it. You know, that, that, that for me is like, all right, let's check it out. Because when we jump into the book of Esther, the reason why Christians have had a hard time with it is because there's no mention of God. There's no promise of a Messiah. There's no talk of heaven or hell. There's no prophets or anything like this. It, it almost reads more historical than biblical. And so we've just kind of struggled with it. But as we jump into this kingdom, we'll see that above the throne of Esther, above the throne of Xerxes, is the throne of King Jesus. We'll see that this morning. Let's go ahead and jump into our study, The Weight of the Crown, the story of Queen Esther. Let's jump in. Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Esther 1, 1 through 9. It reads, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, 
In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed... The king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Don't you love the way it starts? In the days of King Ahasuerus. It has this royal, regal tone to it, right? It's almost like you're being whisked into this kingdom, this fairy tale like setting. And the name Ahasuerus, that's his Persian name. You might know this king better by his Greek name, King Xerxes. So, Xerxes, he's the fifth king of Persia, right? Cyrus was the first. His dad was a well-known king, a very popular, legendary king, King Darius. And Darius, he really helped expand uh, the borders of Persia, really just increase the wealth and the majesty of the Persian Empire. Um, But by the time uh, Xerxes comes along, he takes the throne when he's in his mid-30s. And uh, he didn't really know his dad until he was five years old, you know. In, In those days, powerful men... They conceived children. They didn't really raise children, okay? And so didn't know his dad until he was five, but he was chosen to be the successor to the throne, to be the next king of Persia. And by the time he takes over, the empire is massive. I mean, we just read about it, right? From India to Ethiopia. And when you look on a map and you see just the, the, the breadth of the Persian Empire, you understand 127 provinces. It's, it contains a good chunk of Africa, almost all of the Middle East, a good chunk of India, part of Europe. It is a massive empire. It's filled with people of different ethnicities, different languages. All of that is welcome and encouraged. And it just shows just the the might of the Persian Empire. It was so mighty, in fact, that basically the first postal system was developed by the Persian Empire because if you want to get an edict out to your people, well, there's a whole lot of people. It's got to travel a long way. And so essentially the first, per, uh, the first postal system was established by the Persians to get word, the, uh, word out whenever there's a law or an edict in place. And so when we enter the story of Queen Esther. We're entering into the reign of Xerxes, and it's the third year of his reign. And it tells us that he's sitting on his royal throne. I got I to tell you about the throne, okay? Because it was incredible. It was huge. It, it, was, uh, it was marvelous to look at. And when anyone were to come by the throne, 
you had to bow down before the throne. And if you ever got the idea that you would just kind of try to sit on Xerxes' throne when he wasn't there, or just kind of walk by and just ignore the throne, well, then you'd be executed. Okay, That's how seriously the throne was taken. He also had a portable throne, so when they went out to battle or something, they could just carry him, and he could sit back and just watch his, his mighty men fight and, and this type of thing. So the, 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 the throne symbolized everything that was valued in the culture. And what was valued in the culture was this great, mighty king. And this king was mighty. In fact, it's really hard to understate how powerful and wealthy and mighty King Xerxes was. All right, just, just to talk about his wealth, for example. You, th- you think about like the most wealthy people today, and may- maybe you think of uh, Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg or anybody like that. Basically, you take all of their wealth together and then add another zero to it, and then you're beginning to approximate the wealth of Xerxes. In addition to that, he's also incredibly powerful. So you'd have to throw on him the power of the presidency, the power of the House, the power of the Senate, the power of the Supreme Court, all of that power on Xerxes. And then, just to add one more thing to it, history tells us that this guy was just ridiculously good-looking. I mean, you talk about a guy who had it all, right? Tall, dark, handsome, powerful, wealthy. He's got it all. This guy looks like he has everything. And in that day, as he basically is leader of the world at the time, In some ways, he did, because you know, at that time, there weren't a whole lot of people living in D.C. or New York City or even London or anything like that. So, I mean, you talk about the world at that time. He controls everything. And so we're entering into a kingdom where this guy is powerful and he is wealthy and he is mighty. And what's he going to do with all this power? Well, amongst other things, we're told that he throws a really, really good party. I don't know what the best party is you've ever been to. Maybe it was at a wedding or something like that. And I said, hey, this was a really nice party. It was incredible. Uh, That party probably would have looked like a potluck compared to this party, okay? He throws a party that lasts for 180 days. That's six months. Six months of partying, all right? He invites all the royal officials and all the governors and all the military people, all the mighty men. Everybody's invited to this party. Everybody who's anybody is invited to this party. Now, if hospitality is your gift, all right, if you're like an event coordinator or anything, just imagine trying to coordinate for a party like this. It's estimated that the number of people, the mighty men, the governors, everybody would have numbered in over 15,000 people. You're talking travel arrangements for 15,000 people, sleeping assignments for 15,000 people, food, wine, dancing girls, everything to satisfy 15,000 people. That's the type of party that's going on here. And this is what he throws. Why? Because he's just showing off the lavishness, the excess, the power, the wealth, the, uh, the might of this incredible kingdom. And as you begin reading this book and you see this and you see uh, just he, he comes across at the beginning like this good king. What's he going to do with all this power? What's he going to do with all this wealth? What's he going to do with all this might? He's going to share it with his leaders. He's going to show it off. He's going to throw a party for them. You know, there's this thinking that takes place with humanity in any kingdom that if we have a good king, we'll get a glorious kingdom. You know, that's, that's our thinking. If we have a good king, we'll get a glorious kingdom. 
And you can replace the word king for whatever title you want. If we have a good chancellor, if we have a good prime minister, if we have a good duke, if we have a good president, if we have any of these, then we'll get a good kingdom. That's the thinking of humanity. Well, Xerxes, at first, he looks like a really good king. He's displaying the power and opulence of the Persian kingdom to influential people for six months. And then when that party ends, what's he going to do? He's going to throw another party. I mean, don't you love this? I mean, you talk about a guy who likes to party. This guy, let's throw another party. Only this party, it's only a week long, but it's for everyone in Susa. It doesn't matter how poor, rich, anybody, anybody who's Susa, in Susa, can come to the palace and be a part of this party. Now, if you're just a poor peasant, just a, just a common guy, and you're invited to the palace for this party, can you imagine what you're thinking? This guy, uh, he has basically said, hey, you got a week-long vacation, right? National holiday, you don't have to do any work, come to the palace, And so they all come to the palace, and when they come to the palace, what are they seeing? Well, you see the opulence of it all, right? You see just how incredible everything is. You see the majestic throne. You see the marble pillars. You see the silver rods. You see the white curtains. You see the purple, which purple was very difficult to make in those days. It just just accentuated the wealth of the kingdom. And you see this hanging. You see silver and gold couches. You see all these precious stones, everything. It is incredible. And there is King Xerxes seated on his throne, and you're able to gather around the throne. And you can imagine what everybody's saying, right? Xerxes is great. Xerxes is wonderful. Xerxes, wow, they're worshiping Xerxes. One of the things that Xerxes said about himself, we actually have inscriptions that archaeologists have excavated for us. And he brags that he is the king of all the lands, of all the ethnicities, and he's the king of kings, is what he says of himself. And you can imagine that as the people, they're given this national holiday, and they're invited into the palace, that they would be saying the same thing. Wow, this is the king of kings. He is great. He is wonderful. What a great king we have in King Xerxes. Now, in addition to just seeing everything, they're also going to be fed. And they're going to be fed the best food in the land, and in addition to that, well, there's an open bar, right? All, you know, just drink. Here, drink. Now, we read this all these years later, and we look at this, we say, you know what? If you invite all the people of the city into the palace, and you give them free alcohol for a week, that's a really bad idea, right? There must be some rule to kind of help govern this a little bit. Well, there was. There was one rule. There was one edict. And the edict was this. There are no rules. There are no rules. Everyone can drink as much as they want. Servants, you just keep filling the fine goblets and keep giving it to them. As long as they want to drink, they can drink. Now, we come at this all these years later, and we look at this, and we say, all the king is doing here, this is not a good king. He's promoting debauchery, gluttony, laziness, uh, lust, all kinds of stuff with a party like this. But you know, everyone there in Susa, they're saying, this is a great king. This is the greatest king we've ever had. We love Xerxes. They think if they get a good king, 
they'll get a glorious kingdom. You know, we think the same thing. If we get a good king, we'll get a glorious kingdom. But here's the deal. When you put fallen, faulty, flawed sinners on a throne, you never get a glorious kingdom. You never get a glorious kingdom. There is this great aching need in every kingdom of the earth that's ever been for a good king. And humanity has always been looking around, crying out for a good king, a good leader, someone who can lead us well, who will make laws that are just and righteous, who will lead benevolently and think of their citizens before themselves. We look around for a good king, yearning for a good king. Let me tell you, recognize there is only one good king. It's King Jesus. There is no other good king. Now, some leaders are better than others, yes, but Jesus is the only good king. The problems that any kingdom on earth has ever faced can never fully be solved by sinful, flawed men. The need of every kingdom is King Jesus. He's the answer. He's the answer to the problems of every kingdom. The only good king is King Jesus. Now, this party, open bar for a week, you got all these drunk men, it's a mess, you can imagine things are, are, maybe the women knew that it was going to be a little crazy, so Queen Vashti, she says, you know what, rather than the women go to this party, I'm just going to throw my own party and the women can come over here, you know, all these drunk guys, that's bound not to end well. And so she has her own party going on, and then things will turn. Let's go ahead, we'll re-enter the story, Esther 1, 10 through 22, Esther chapter 1, verses 10 through 22. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizda, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all those who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mirs, Marcina, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memukin said, to the, said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king, as Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same thing to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she." 
So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memekin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So, just like you would expect, the king is drunk, all right? Now, in those days, you need to understand that the word banquet, uh, Herodotus, the, the ancient Greek historian, he said that the word banquet for Persians basically meant drinking occasion, all right? That the Persians really knew how to drink, especially the kings. He also said that the kings of Persia, they never made any important decision unless they were inebriated. And if they ever made an important decision while they were sober, then once they became drunk, they would reconsider the decision just to be sure it was right. Now, he's probably embellishing, okay, because, you know, the Greeks and the Persians, they don't really get along, but this is the stereotype. This is the thinking. The Persians they, they loved to drink, and so the royal wine is flowing, the king is drunk, you can imagine all the men there are drunk, and there's this banter going on, and sooner or later, there's dancing girls, everything, and sooner or later, the king has this grand idea that he wants to show off his wife, and so he orders her to come, he summons her, tells her to, to wear her royal headdress, and come and show off her beauty in front of all these men. Now, the Jewish Midrash, uh, it, it says that when he's summoning her, he's telling her to come in nothing but her royal headdress. That was all she would have on. Again, it's likely that that's probably embellished, but we don't really know. What we do know is this. The king basically wanted his wife to come be there so that all the men in the kingdom could just lust after her. That's the idea, right? And so... With this, uh, what he's doing is he's wanting everyone in his kingdom to know, look, look at all my power, look at all my wealth, look at everything that I have, all this fine stuff, and look at my wife. I got the best of everything. Everybody would want to be me. He wants to be the envy of everyone in his kingdom. And so he uses his wife. He objectifies her. He denigrates her. He embarrasses her as he summons her. Now, you should know this was a very polygamous society. Uh, King Xerxes, it's estimated that even by this time, before even there was the contest that Queen Esther would win, that he uh, had about hundred or 350 wives and concubines. All right, so this, this, this is how many women that he has in his harem. The name Vashti, uh, we actually think that it's probably not even her name. It actually means beloved. It's probably just his favorite wife, okay? And so, if in fact, if she's the wife that we think she is, he, uh, she became his wife because Xerxes uh, had his brother murdered so that he could marry his sister-in-law. And at the same time, he also married his niece, so you're beginning to understand a little bit of the depravity of King Xerxes. Uh, but that's what's happening. And anyway, the command comes to Vashti to come. 
so that all the men in Susa can lust after her. And Queen Vashti, she understands one thing. If there's anybody that you don't say no to, you don't say no to King Xerxes, right? He's the one guy in the whole kingdom. You don't say no to him. He can embarrass you. You can't embarrass him. But she's looking at this. And Austin, can you just feel for a moment the weight of the crown that Queen Vashti has? Because she knows she's been invited into this palace all of this palace, everything there, all these servants, everyone attending to her every need. She's able to throw a lavish party for all the women of Susa. She has all this. She has all this power, all the fine things in life. She has it because she's married to King Xerxes. And she knows if she says no, something bad is going to happen. What? She probably doesn't know that, but something bad is going to happen. And yet, her response is, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not just going to go and be paraded in front of all of these guys, just to, these drunk men, just to oogle at me. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. And so, at that moment, the king has to decide what he's going to do. And what he does is, he gets all the wise men to come and give him some advice. Listen, when you're wrong, here's the advice you need. When you're wrong, repent, all right? It doesn't matter your position. It doesn't matter if you're the boss high up on the totem pole or if you're at the very bottom. When you're wrong, repent. Now, I imagine if King Xerxes would have gone to Queen Vashti later and just said, Queen, I'm sorry, uh, I was drunk. Uh, there were all these guys, and you know, guy, we're just talking and everything, and I just wanted everybody to see how beautiful you are, and I'm sorry I was wrong. It was humiliating, it was objectifying, it was denigrating, it was wrong. I should not have asked you to come and be paraded in front of everybody like that. I imagine things probably could have worked out, you know. He could have said whatever he wanted to. He was the high man. Nobody's going to argue with him. He could, he could say whatever he wanted to to all those princes, and he could justify his own actions. He didn't have to make an example out of her, but that's not the route he chose. Listen, if you wrong somebody, and you know you've wronged somebody, repent. Go to them. Own what you've done Say, I'm sorry. And things go a lot better than when you try to justify yourself or try to get people on your side or even expand it real big. Well, here's what happened. What do you think I should do? Just go and repent, all right? The king doesn't do that. He gets all his wise men together and wants to find a solution to the problem. And one of them speaks up and he says, you know, king, this isn't just a big deal for you. This affects every man in Persia, because word's going to get out that Vashti defied you. And then all the men, especially the royal women, you know, they're going to think that they're going to be able to say to the different governors and the different military leaders and the different people in power, they can just say to their husbands, no, that's not going to go well. This, This affects everybody. Something has to be done. In fact, you deserve a wife so much better than this, so much worthy, so much more worthy of the crown than Vashti. So here's what you should do. You should banish her away. Don't let her ever enter your presence again. And there needs to be an edict that goes out 
that everybody knows, and we don't want anybody to miss this, so we'll put it in every language so everybody gets this, that women must understand the husbands are in charge. They must obey their husbands. And the king hears this, and he says, that's a great idea. I love this. Yeah, we should do that. Vashti's replaceable, and women need to know their place. This is great. What a great idea. Now, we come at this all these years later, and it's almost comical to us, you know? We look at this section, and we read it, and it's almost laughable. You say, all these wise men. And you know what happens when you get a whole bunch of, like, wise men together, powerful men? You know what happens? They take themselves really seriously. They don't take anybody else all that seriously, right? So all they're thinking about is themselves. How do we protect ourselves? Listen, when you try to legislate submission, all you end up is with is a, lovel- a loveless marriage. You can't, you can't legislate submission. As Christians, I hope we all love biblical, godly submission. But sometimes in the history of the church, kind of like Persia, there have been men who, who read and says, okay, wives, be submissive to their husbands. Oh, and somehow they find this other verse. And men, you need to tell your wives they need to be submissive to you. That's not the command. The command is men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This self-sacrificial love. You try to legislate submission, you end up with a loveless marriage. And really, this happens throughout the Persian Empire, and it's no wonder why polygamy was so uh, in vogue. Why? Because women basically became trophies. They became prizes. They were objectified. They were denigrated. They were humiliated. And ultimately, it just distorted God's beautiful and wonderful design for marriage. Now, when you're reading this story and you're, and you're in chapter one of Esther and you see just the magnificence of this kingdom and this king who has all this power and all this might and so much, there can be this thought, how in the world is Esther going to enter this story? How are you going to get a Jewish lady? How is she going to be able to become queen and take the crown? And behind all of this, there's a God who stands above, who's orchestrating all of these events. And so he's working through these wise men and their almost laughable edicts to set the stage for Queen Esther to enter the story. You know, when you open chapter one and you first begin reading it, and you're reading about King Xerxes, he comes across at the the beginning as this benevolent king, this good king who will throw lavish parties for his people and invite them into the palace and feed them and, and share his wealth with them. He comes across as good. And by the end of chapter one, the tables have turned real fast. Because now he's a nasty, drunk guy, right? He's like, well, you hide the women from him. I don't want my girl, you know. It, he's abusive. He's ugly. Our opinion of him has changed so much. Here's the good news. Above King Xerxes 
is another king. Above the throne of Xerxes, there is another royal throne. And the one who sits on that throne is King Jesus. But King Jesus, you know, Xerxes, he wanted to stay on his throne. He wanted to be carried around on his throne to all the battles and all the different places. Let me tell you, King Jesus, he didn't stay on his throne. He got off his throne to come down to sinful humanity to become one of us, to become sin for us. Xerxes, he objectified, he humiliated, he denigrated his wife. King Jesus, he allowed himself to become objectified, denigrated, humiliated for his bride, for the church, so that we can one day be presented as righteous, as glorious, as redeemed. King Xerxes, he was a man who thought he became a god. Jesus, he's the one and only true God who became a man. King Xerxes, oh, he had subjects from a whole bunch of different nations. King Jesus, he has worshipers from every nation. King Xerxes, he threw a pretty impressive party. King Jesus, he's preparing a banquet that will make that one look like nothing. He's preparing it for us. King Xerxes, he thought he was the king of kings. And you know what happened? He died. No one worships King Xerxes anymore. But you know what else happened? He stood before the throne of the one true king, Jesus Christ. You understand, behind the story of Esther, There is only one who can bear the weight of the crown righteously, and it's King Jesus. Heavenly Father, God, we we thank you for King Jesus. And Lord, the thinking of humanity throughout the centuries has been right, that if we get a good king, we will get a glorious kingdom. But God, help us to recognize that the only good king is King Jesus. And so, Father, we watch and we pray, we look expectantly, waiting for his rule and his reign to be perfectly expressed on earth as it already is in heaven. In the meantime, Father, help all of us, your church, your redeemed bride, who you allowed yourself to be objectified, denigrated, humiliated on our behalf, help us to be the church you call us to be by telling people of our wonderful King, King Jesus. We need your help to do this. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.